hear the word of God. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, I read these verses last Sunday in the whole context of verses 12 through 19. I wanted to sort of pull them out this Sunday in a sense to be startled by them. I think what startles us, what startles me at least, is that Peter uses this word judgment in the context of believers. We're accustomed to that word being used in the context of unbelievers, but the context of believers, he says, that for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And he's talking, Peter is, if you remember the context of 12 through 19, or really the context of First Peter, he's talking to a group of people who are suffering, many suffering directly because they're Christians, they're being insulted for their faith, they're being persecuted simply because they're believers in Christ, they're suffering for doing good, for being righteous, for following Christ. And Peter is referring to that even as the judgment of God, beginning uh, at the household of God. Peter's not trying to be morbid here. He's not trying to, 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 to scare us, even in a sense, because he's saying that even in this context, we should rejoice. We should rejoice in the midst of, of even this kind of suffering. So it's not that he's speaking of being morbid, but he's telling us, I think, at least this, that life is significant, that life is important, that the motto for our life can't be eat, drink, and be merry. That we mustn't view ourselves as the final arbiters of what is truth or what is right or what is good, but rather there is one who determines all of that, God himself. And it's God who judges, it's God who evaluates. In Ecclesiastes and chapter 12, if you could turn there quickly, if you can find it quickly. Ecclesiastes chapter, chapter 12, this is the last couple of verses really you might remember, I don't know, it's been a number of years since we worked our way through Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You see, it's because the fact that everything matters to God, that everything matters to us that he's the one who'll judge, he's the one who'll evaluate, he's the one who is, in fact, the final arbiter on truth, the final arbiter on what is good, the final arbiter on what is right. And so everything, therefore, must be measured by him and in relationship to him. See, the identity of our lives, the definition of our lives, isn't our ethnic background. It isn't our gender, male or female. It isn't how much money we have. It isn't our educational level. It isn't our social standard. It's how we're related to God. That's what's important. And so Peter says, I want you to, to sit up quickly and to take notice that judgment begins with the household of God. Really, at is a better translation. If you have the NIV, it says with. My version says at the household of God, meaning the place of origin, where it begins, is with the people of God. That's where his judgment begins. And he says, I want you to know that. I want you to understand that. Now it seems too that as Peter's talking about judgment, 
it, it begins, if you will, at the house of God, but it progresses as well. Because he says, for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? You get the impression that the outcome, thus the purpose of the judgment, that the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God is different than the outcome for us, as he puts it. For if, he says, it is time for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Do you get that impression? Do you, do you see that nuance that he's hinting? And it's going to be worse for them, you get the impression, that this is what's happening to us. What's going to be the case for them? And then he goes on to quote uh, perhaps one of the Proverbs, and he says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, that is to say, if it's difficult for the righteous one in his saving, in his being saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And so I don't know about you, but as I take those two verses out of that whole paragraph, it, it, it causes me to suck air, to begin to think, what's Peter getting at? What's that really mean in the context of our own lives and for the things of God? With some thought, though, we realize this is the way, in a sense, it's always been, that God's judgment, if you will, comes first to his own. In fact, we could translate this very literally, for it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. In fact, Peter uses that expression in chapter 2 when he talks about us being built into a spiritual house, the very dwelling place of God. And so we could say that judgment begins at the house of God, at God's very dwelling place, and works out from there. And, and that seems to be the way it's always been. For instance, turn to Ezekiel in chapter 9. We're going to our way through Ezekiel more recently, Ezekiel in chapter 9. And I think we'll see the same kind of thing he had many centuries earlier and far more graphic than Peter puts it. Ezekiel chapter 9 and verse 1. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice saying, Bring the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand, and behold, Six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them as a man, was a man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, on which it rested, to the threshold of the house, okay? The house of God, the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen, who had a writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Therefore, he says, this, this judgment's going to come through, but, but put a mark on all those who, who get it, who understand, who, 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 um, who are sorrowful because of all the sins being committed. You get a sense that those are attached to God. Verse 5. And to the others he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Uh, your eye shall not spare and you shall not show, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. So you see the difference in, in the way this judgment's coming about. Different purpose, different intention. Judgment goes through. And as we understand these times, we know that there was an exile. We know that there was a destruction of Jerusalem. And, 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 and we know perhaps that, 
that in some sense Ezekiel speaking figuratively here, but we do know that there are some who God treated differently than others in the context of this judgment. And it was how they related to his own heart and his own standards. Turn to Malachi in chapter 2. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. So go to Matthew if you're more accustomed to that and turn one page to your left. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17. We read this. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? In other words, God was wearied with people being critical of him, of people evaluating him, of people judging him. The people were looking around saying, you know, we're not doing so well, but it seems that those who, who aren't part of the nation of Israel, who, aren't, who are pagans, are actually doing better than we are. Therefore, God must be affirming the wicked and not us. Where is God anyway? Is he the God of injustice? God doesn't like to be judged, you see, because he's not worthy of our judgment. Who are we to put him in the dock? Who are we to judge him? Who are we to say what he's doing is wrong? So chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I, God is the I there. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he, that is the Lord, the messenger of this covenant, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller or launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and and purifier of silver, He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Then chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogance and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now you get an impression here, don't you? That when God moves through in this judgment, that on the one hand he refines some And on the other hand, he destroys others. You get the sense that on the one hand, it's a very controlled flame. It's a very controlled fire that comes to do a particular work in a particular people to purify them like a refiner would purify silver. Like that kind of fire. But then this last verse we read, it appears that it's like a forest fire that goes indiscriminately and just burns these. Or in verse 5 of chapter 3, that there are those that are going to come and, and destroy, condemn, if you will. Now the prophet Malachi writes to us that God says that he's going to first send this messenger before the refiner. 
He's going to send this messenger before this one who's going to come and judge as a refiner would judge. And he even sends a messenger before this final judgment takes place. He identifies this one to make preparation. Notice chapter 4, verse 5. We read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, who are these ones that are to come? Well, turn to Matthew in chapter 11. Giving your work out today. I haven't heard as many pages turning in the last month. I like to hear when I say things, so you're going to have to look stuff up today. Matthew chapter 11. Verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus said, it's John the Baptist who's the one who comes to make preparation. He's the Elijah of God who will come to prepare the way of the Lord. And by this point, he had come. And thus, who's the one who's to come to refine? Who's the one who's going to come, as Malachi says, to his temple? Who is the one who is the Lord? Well, Jesus himself. And so you see, what we need to understand is that as believers in Christ, certainly we're justified by grace through faith. That is, when we believe in Jesus, we're declared righteous because of Christ. First, because of his life. It's his righteousness that clothes us so that when we enter into God's presence, we enter into the, name of, into the presence of God in the name of Jesus. Saying, I don't come in my own name, I come in Jesus' name. That isn't something we simply tack on to the end of our prayers to let everybody know we're just about done. It means that we're coming in Jesus. We're not coming in ourselves, but in Him. And so we're coming because of Him, because of His righteousness. He's the one who makes us right before God. And we come in the name of Jesus because He's the one who takes our sins upon Himself, that we might, with clear conscience, enter the presence of God knowing that we're forgiven. Penalty's been paid. And so we come, you see, in Jesus' name. So we are justified by grace. It's God's gift to us. Through faith, we trust and believe. But, but we must understand that when we enter into this justification, that it means we're adopted into the family of God, into his house. And when we're adopted into his house, into his family, 
it means that we fall under the care and discipline of our Heavenly Father. And that He comes in our salvation to purify us, to cleanse us, to refine us. And that's the work of Christ through the Spirit. And He comes to refine us. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. And verse 11. This is John the Baptist speaking of Jesus. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Because he'll come to refine you because he's the very one who comes with the fire of judgment in the lives of believers to purify. And I don't know about you, but I need to be refined in the context of my own life. I understand that I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I understand when I enter into the presence of God, live in the presence of God, I do so because of the righteousness of Christ. But I also know that at this point in time, my salvation is being worked out by way of that big word, sanctification, which means I'm being sanctified or holified or being made holy, being refined, being purified in the very presence of God by His Spirit. And that's this work. And so when Peter says, that it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God, at the house of God, here with us believers, those in Peter's day all the way through history and us. He's saying that the, 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 the work of Christ in us is to refine us, to purify us, which is crucial for us. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall... God. Again, the work of Christ purifies us so that we can embrace God, so we can know Him. But this has an experiential aspect to it as well. That as we're refined, as we're purified in our walk with God, we see Him more clearly. I wonder, in the context of my own life, how much of my own sin gets in the way of me clearly seeing God and being able to make good decisions on the basis of what's right according to God, make good decisions for myself and those under my care. I wonder if only I were more refined, if I could see God more clearly, if this sin that's blocking me, that's making me selfish, that's making wrong choices, making me envious, just making wrong choices, being impatient, that's making wrong choices, being greedy, that's making wrong choices. All those things, you can list your own sins. Keeps us from seeing God. In fact, the author of Hebrews, turn, this is a good one too. Hebrews, somewhere, uh, chapter 12, verse 14. The author of Hebrews says, Strive for peace with everyone, and for, meaning, and also strive for, so strive for, that means this should be the intention of your life. 
It should be something that you go after with every ounce of your being. With everything God is pouring into you and everything God has made you to be and all that you know, all that stuff, strive for with every ounce of all that. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's God's will. He desires us to be holy. He desires us to be pure in his sight. And you see, that's the work of Jesus. And that's this sense of judgment. Back to 1 Peter, verse 12, chapter 4. Peter introduces all of this by saying, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Now here Peter's speaking of fire. He's using that image. And it's a trial. It's, it's something that's difficult. And it's fiery in the sense of what? In the sense of purifying fire. In the sense of sanctifying fire. In the sense that Jesus has come to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, in the sense that Malachi said there was one who was coming who would be this very Messiah who would come and refine us with refiner's fire to take out impurities, to purify us. And so Peter's saying, now don't be surprised when this happens. Why? Because judgment begins at the household of God, begins with us, because we're nearest and dearest to God's heart. Because when we come into his family, adopted into his family, because we're justified, declared righteous before him, he works in us. He just doesn't leave us there. He works in us. And it's this fire of sanctification, this fire of the work of Christ, this fire of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And so Peter says, don't be surprised when these trials come, which are fiery, which are refining. And Peter has in mind, in this context here, those trials which come to us because we're living for Christ. Because we're following Christ. See, you're being insulted for the sake of Christ. You're suffering as a Christian. And he's saying that's the judgment of God beginning with you. And you want to say, well, why is that called the judgment of God? That doesn't sound nice. He's saying because what God is doing in the midst of this circumstance, in the midst of these trials, is he's judging your heart to see what's there and to expose it. Why do professors give tests? I know, the students are thinking, because they're mean. <laughs> they hate me. Uh, not, not really. I mean, I can't judge their motives. Maybe some of them are mean. Maybe some of them do hate you. But, but the reason teachers, professors give tests is to judge to see the purity versus impurity of your knowledge in that area. And where your knowledge is impure, where it's wrong, it needs to be pointed out so that it can be corrected, so that it become more pure in that area. That's really the ultimate desire of a, of a teacher in giving a test, to assess, to say, this is where you are. And so for those who fear the professor and who've been studying, then the desire is to refine their thinking. But for those who don't fear the professor and haven't been engaged, then the, the end result of that exam is that they fail. And so, if judgment's going to begin with those students who are studying, what will become of those who aren't? In business, the marketplace is that great tester. For those who fear the market, listen to the market, disciplined by the market, they're refined by it. 
And so their businesses change according to how the market is dictating those changes. For those who don't, what will become of those? And Peter's saying, understand your life here. It's significant. It's important. God has a purpose. He's the judge of everything. Thus, everything is important. And it isn't that he doesn't want your happiness. He does. It isn't that he wants you, doesn't want you to have fun. In that sense, he does. It isn't that he wants, doesn't want you to be filled with joy. He does. It isn't that he doesn't want you to be complete and satisfied and whole. But we have to understand there's no wholeness. There's no satisfaction without holiness. Everything else is counterfeit happiness. Counterfeit joy. Counterfeit contentment. So Peter says it begins right here the house of God. Because you see, how will we ever know how unloving we are unless we have people who hate us? I'm fairly good at being nice, at least, to people who are nice to me. But it's when people hate me that tests whether I have love within me, really. It's when people hurt me the tests whether or not I can forgive. It's when people annoy me tremendously that I have to, that, that it tests to see if I can really be patient. It's when people are rude to me, the tests to determine whether or not I can be kind. When people are harsh with me, that's when I'm being tested as to whether or not I can be gentle. And so Peter's saying, don't be surprised when these tests come your way, and don't be surprised when they come even from opposition. It's rather amazing, you see, that when the opposition comes against us to try to get us to, to flounder in our faith, we actually grow stronger. Because, you see, these insults come because we're walking with Christ and the refiner is at work in us. It strengthens us and strengthens our resolve. So much so that they see that we're not afraid of them, as Paul writes in Philippians in chapter 1. And it actually reveals to them that they're lost and that we're saved. So Peter says, don't be surprised at these things. In fact, he goes on to say, if the righteous is scarcely saved, that is, if, it's, if being saved is not a picnic, if being saved is not an easy ride, if being one who's saved doesn't exclude you from this judgment of the refiner, then what will it be for the ungodly? And that's a grave question. Uh, turn to Second Thessalonians <clears throat> in chapter one. Verse three. Paul writes this. He says, We are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as his rights, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in all the afflictions that you're enduring. So Paul is saying, we affirm you, we, we boast about you, we, we're, we're amazed at you. Because even though you're being persecuted and suffering for Christ's sake, 
still you're persevering. And then verse 5, he says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. You know, I want to say, no, 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 no. Paul, what would be evidence of the righteous judgment of God is if he really zapped all these people who were coming against me. What would really be the righteous judgment of God that I would see to be evidence of that is if he just leveled everybody who said bad things about me. That would be the righteous judgment of God. But, but, but Paul doesn't put it that way. He says, in the midst of your persecutions and sufferings, even these are part of the righteous judgment of God. Notice verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. He says these, these, these persecutions, these sufferings have a purpose. And the purpose is to make you worthy for the kingdom. That is, not that you earn being part of the kingdom, not, not, that, not that you merit it, not that you deserve it after you've suffered a certain amount of time, but in the midst of this you see the refining is going on and people see that your life is consistent with one who's in the kingdom of God. Oh, yes. Now that's one who's worthy to be called, referred to as, declared to be a Christian. That's one who's walking with Christ even in the midst of these difficulties. And then he goes on to say this. He says, verse 6, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, he says, listen, don't worry. God is just. If they've afflicted you, God knows that. His just justice delayed isn't justice denied with God, so it will come. But then notice how he puts it. Verse 7. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty anger, angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And Peter asks the question, what will become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Paul answers it. He says that Jesus will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of God. And that eternal destruction is not an annihilation. It doesn't mean that they're going to be destroyed, thus they won't exist anymore. But it'll be an eternal destruction. It will be an eternal punishment. It will be living forever under the wrath of God. Because you see, Jesus comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And for those upon whom the Holy Spirit comes and those who are transformed, that fire is one of a refining fire that we needn't fear, that we need to understand, that we need to realize is going to happen. And when it does happen, and as it's happening, we need to rejoice in that, saying, this is good. I'm going to be able to see God better. I'm going to be able to know him better. My life is actually improving, even though I'm being spat upon because I'm a Christian, even though I'm being insulted because I'm a Christian, even though I'm being misunderstood because I'm a Christian, even though I'm suffering because I'm a Christian. My life's actually improving. It's actually getting better. 
Because in this test, it's revealing my sin. And in my aggravation, I'm seeing my impatience and confessing it before God. I'm saying, oh God, help me be more patient. And in the midst of it, I'm seeing how unkind I can be, and I'm confessing that before God, saying, oh God, please enable me to be kind in the midst of this situation. In the midst of my unforgiveness, I'm saying, oh God, how can I be so bitter? How can I be so angry? How can I be so unforgiving when you've forgiven me so much? Please help me forgive. And in the midst of that, you see, my life is actually improving. I'm actually maturing. I'm actually moving on a path where God will make more and more sense to me. Well, I'll be able to understand him better than ever before when I'll be able to see him, to perceive him, to understand him. He says that's what's coming, this refiner, to those who are continuing to persevere, but to those who are not. This fire takes on a different function, a different purpose, a different intention. And this fire is that fire that never goes out. This fire is that fire that never dies. This fire is that fire that continues to destroy, not improve. It continues to destroy, not refine. And that destruction can take place even now as God gives people over to their own depravity, as Romans 1 says. And they live in the midst of that depravity, never to get out. And the saddest thing of all is that they're confused so that they actually think they're satisfied and they're content and life is good. That the judgment of God. But then the eternal destruction, frankly, is unthinkable. And so Peter says, understand, church, that it begins with us because he cares for us, because we belong to him, because we're under his fatherly, kindly care and discipline. And this will refine you and make you worthy of the kingdom of God. That to me is amazing. But then he says, to those who do not obey the gospel of God, that is simply those who do not believe that this fire will destroy. Yeah. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, his disciples would see more clearly from that moment on and then of course after the resurrection of Jesus and after the coming of the Holy Spirit upon them all that Jesus had said and done but he took bread he had suffered and the scripture said that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered not that he was disobedient but but again he was tested as a man throughout the course of his life, as tests come to us, as he suffered insults as the Son of God and loved and forgave and was kind and patient, he learned what all that meant as a human being on our behalf. And then he comes to this great moment of suffering and he takes the bread that was before him and he breaks it. He gives thanks to his Father and he gives it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in 
remembrance of me, and then he takes the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gives this to his disciples, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And there are many things of Jesus we might remember, but certainly his own sacrifice that he obeyed in the midst of this great trial of crucifixion and being forsaken by his father and all the insults that fell his way and all the misery and pain and all of that, none to be compared to taking our sin and being forsaken by his father. We might remember that. We might then understand that there is this testing through suffering then we all might also understand, and I would urge this upon you, that he is the very one who has come to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And to understand in the context of our lives, when he comes and he pours his spirit upon us and changes our hearts, that we might believe. Think about that for a minute. In the context of your life, if you're a believer in Christ, you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit from Jesus because you believe. It means the Spirit of God has come upon you to enable you to believe. An amazing miracle. The wonderful gift of loving grace. But then not only that, but this baptism of the Holy Spirit comes also with fire. And the Lord Jesus, through the Spirit, refines you, changes you, matures you, cleanses you so that you might be worthy of the kingdom of God. We think about that. We think about the course of your own life and the various areas that you may be suffering, some at the hands of oppressors, and to embrace that suffering, to know that Jesus is there, and he's refining you, and he's testing. That's the judgment beginning at your house, the very house of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you take this bread and this juice and set it apart. It'll ever remain bread and juice. But Father, I pray that you would set it apart in such a way that would remind us of Jesus that he is the one who has suffered for us. He's the one who's perfectly obeyed in the midst of all that suffering. He's the one who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I pray, Father, for each of us that we would come to this table and embrace the fire of your discipline in our lives. That we might see where we've missed the mark. And we might confess our sins before you and ask and receive your strength and help. And Father, that you would also encourage us too to see where you have helped us, strengthened us, matured us, grown us, refined us, that we might look on any of the times of love or kindness of gentleness, forgiveness, speaking a good word of another and realize that's the work of God in me and that we would be grateful.
So, Father, I pray to set aside these elements in a way that would cause us to think about Jesus, who he is, and all that he's done in our lives. And that as we fellowship with him, that we might be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.